Welcome to the Breaking to Startups podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds who broke into tech. Today, we sit down with Sivan Cook, who is not only the commissioner for San Francisco's Unified School District, but he's also the CEO of MissionBit. MissionBit's goal is to bring tech education to high school kids. In our interview with Sivan, he talks about how his program is able to connect students to professional software engineers and tech entrepreneurs. Many of you probably don't know that in San Francisco alone, there are close to 22,000 tech companies. Yet, most high school students have never set foot in a downtown office or experienced what it is like to be at a startup. Sivan is changing that with his work through MissionBit. And as someone who grew up in the Bayview, he's been able to see a lot of the changes in the city and how tech played a factor in it. On this episode, we also talk about what it was like for Stevan to run for office to become the commissioner and not get elected the first time, only to win the election the next time around. Now, before we jump into the interview, we also want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, John Dang, who left a review on iTunes. John wrote, as a former army officer turned software engineer, Ruben, Arthur, and Timur's podcast re-hits home. I face the same battles that the guests on their show face. Imposter syndrome, self-doubt, the desire to succeed in face of all obstacles. If you need advice and inspiration, I would definitely recommend this series. Thanks for tuning in, John, and we appreciate your review. If you guys have not left a review and you want to get a shout out on the podcast, head over to iTunes and leave a few words. We're always excited to hear from you. And now, without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Getting the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arjun Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Startups Podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so today we're recording out of the Mission Bits office. It's 7 p.m. on a Sunday night, and we're going to start out the year with a bang. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, so we're here with Stephen Cook. If you're out here in the Bay, you know him as your new commissioner of the San Francisco School Board. But what you might not know is that he's also the CEO of MissionBit. For those of you that don't know, MissionBit is dedicated to bridging the divide, the tech divide, by teaching computer programming to public high school students. And so, Stevan is going to take us back to where it all started. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what led you to a political career and um, getting into computer science and, and um, education? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, first of all, thank you all for coming to the office and for having me on the, the show. Uh, you've had a lot of incredible guests, so I'm glad to be a part of what you're trying to build. Yeah, I'm a third-generation San Franciscan. I grew up in public housing in San Francisco, born in the mid-'80s. And, you know, like a lot of black families that were in black communities in the 80s, my family struggled with a lot of uh, self-destructive things that were sort of pulling the community down. So so I saw a lot at a young age, drug addiction, alcoholism, violence, and it got really bad. And so me and my sister moved in with my grandparents, my father's mother and uh, my father's parents. And my life completely changed after that. So I was like 10 years old, living with uh, my grandparents in the Fillmore, which is historically considered like the Harlem of the West. It's this longstanding, uh, strong black community that has experienced a lot of gentrification over the past, you know, 20 years. But in that home, 
I got a lot of structure, you know, that were like incredibly just focused on getting me and my sisters out of all the opportunities that they that they could give us. And yeah, so I was just like a, a kid growing up in the city. Can you tell us a little bit more about how life was when it was unstructured and then the differences when it became structured? Yeah, yeah. So my, you know, my, my parents were, they did the best that they could and uh, they were trying to just make a way for us. There wasn't like a lot of opportunity. So my dad, you know, he, he held down a job. My mom was constantly trying to find work in the community that I grew up in. There was, you know, it's like a, a lot of neighborhood kids. We all kind of met at the, the recreation center. So you would go to school, you would go home, and you made your friends. And as we got older, there was a lot of things that was introduced to us kids that we just kind of picked up because it was it was really prevalent in the streets, and uh, we didn't have a lot of folks around telling us like right from wrong. So we got introduced to drugs early. We got introduced to, you know, uh, stealing cars early. You know, it was like there was like a lot of just self destructive behavior that was happening. And we didn't have a lot of guidance and the older kids in the, in the community were putting it in front of us. So, so my childhood looked like the childhood of a lot of sort of inner city youth. And you, you talked about a lot, a lot about like being the best and things like that. When you were going through a lot of those types of things and being influenced by the people that were around you, how did you take or what, what lessons did you learn through that process? And how did that affect you in this, this new environment? And what did that new environment look like? Yeah, yeah. When 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 I was growing up, you know, because of some of the the antics that my parents had in the streets, I used to get teased a lot because like, oh, look at his mom. Oh, look at his dad. And I was just like, I was just constantly carrying this shame and humiliation. I was like, you know, pushed to the side and bullied because of it. And so it really made me seek their like the validation of the kids around me a lot more. So I was really trying to like uh, figure out, you know, how can I get accepted. You know, how can I get a girl to like me? <laughs> how can I get invited to play on the basketball team? It was just like all these things that, you know, weren't my fault, but I was being pushed away for, and it made me want their support a lot more. So, you know, so that really defined me for a long time. I, I sought that out for a long time. And what changed was when I got to my grandparents' home, uh, the whole perspective about what was important and what to value was different, you know? And the things that I struggled that I didn't have consistently, I had. So, like, there was always food in the fridge. Uh, there was always something to go to after school. So I wasn't really kicking it after school anymore because my grandma had me in the choir. You know, she had me pushing patients at Laguna Honda, going from, like, their beds to the chapel so she could play piano for them. She had me um, at Bible study and yada, 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 yada. And so, you know, I was over-involved at a time right after I had, like, you know, no structure. But my peers were the people that I still wanted to be around. So I didn't really realize how important that was until, you know, I got much older. So I still sought them out, even though I was getting like a lot more structure from my grandparents. It it, it sounded like you went from fitting in to standing out, but you still had your like support system. Uh, Yeah. Well, I didn't really. Yeah. I mean, I was still trying to fit in. You know, I was still trying to like in a way I was still trying to fit in. I started to stand out later because once I realized that. I didn't really need the support of anybody, and I had the time and space to commit to things that I was passionate about. I had a supportive home environment that can really help cultivate that passion. Yeah, and um, did you? Um, was it years later than when you looked back and you said, "Hey, like I appreciate what my grandma was doing for me back when she was uh, uh, she was signing up for the choir groups." Were you like one of those kids who 
was like grandma like i don't want to do this i want to go play with the kids on the streets or were you realizing even back then that this was good for me like i this will help me maybe get into a college or have a career yeah i hated the choir <laughs> i hated the choir i hated like i used to cry because i didn't want to sing i used to tell my grandma i didn't believe in god because i thought that she would not take me to church anymore <laughs> you know i was desperately trying to be outside with everybody else and she just was just you know unwilling to compromise and so i, I didn't really appreciate that until later but the, the funny thing about our relationship my grandma you know she'd be the first to tell you when i was in high school she thought that i was like headed for the worst life you know she thought i was really gonna be just a mess you know and she was she was like yeah you know she would say things like i don't know if he's gonna go to college you know i, I hope he can get a vocation maybe he can start to you know like steven you can always like you know go to the post office you can work at ups like you know she was trying to put ideas in my mind about work because she really believed that my future prospects were going to be limited because how resistant i was to her how eager i was to not you know take her guidance and yeah and so when i started to really get into school she's like she was like shocked you know so it sounded like she introduced you to a routine not just like checking your homework but also giving you a, a balance with you know church and choir and things like that um even though you were resistant but you start that started to lead you towards you know, learning some things and you getting into school. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about what it, what got you excited about school? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, having that stability at home meant was like was everything, you know, and I, it, it wasn't necessarily that the stuff that she tried to instill in me ended up being what I wanted to pursue, but I was safe. And I didn't really know how important that was until like much later. And what the things that got me into school really were, the educators I had at Thurgood Marshall, Thurgood Marshall High School in Baby Hunters Point. At the time, it was called the Black Lowell. And for people that don't know Lowell, Lowell High School is it's one of the most prestigious public high schools in the country. You know, we've had Supreme Court justices that go to Lowell, head of Fortune 500 companies have gone to Lowell. And so Thurgood Marshall was the Black Lowell. It was like in Baby Hunters Point, And they had built this reputation with the school of sending low-income students to college. So when I went to, when I was a ninth grader, when I was looking at high schools in the, you know, in the eighth grade, I got assigned to McAteer and McAteer was sort of like considered one of these dropout factories. It was, my dad was actually first graduating class from McAteer, but it had this longstanding, really bad reputation of just not being a school with a bad reputation. And so I was like, I can't go to McAteer and my friends are going to Thurgood. So I was like, I want to go to Thurgood. I had to write a letter to get in because they had a lottery to get in and I didn't, I didn't get accepted. And when I got there, every ninth grader got a computer. It was like a part of the part of getting into this public school in Bayview. It's like everyone gets a computer and everyone here is going to college. That was the message that they instilled in us when I got to campus. And so the results were, as I was there, you know, 90% of the, the graduates were going to four-year schools. They were getting a million dollars in scholarships a year. And they had built these really strong connections with the ninth and 10th grade groups to build like these cohorts. So in the 10th grade, I had a teacher, an English teacher named Allison Rowland that encouraged me to take this summer program at Stanford. It was like a philosophy program. And it was the first time that I left San Francisco. So here I am, like this kid, you know, from Bayview and, and Fillmore. The first time I ever really leave the city for an extended amount of time. And I'm at Stanford for three weeks. And it was, you know, it was my really my first eye-opening to people outside of the community that I grew up in. 
there were kids there from all over the world. You know, one kid, like he lived in 90210. He lived in Beverly Hills. I, I, I didn't know that was a real place. I just, I knew it was a TV <laughs> show, but his, that was a zip code. Yeah. And they had kids that whose parents were ambassadors. And so the, the couple of things that happened to me at that program, which was really transformational was a kid, they were, everybody was talking about their, what their parents did. And so the conversation came to me and they're like, oh, well, what do your parents do? And I said, well, I live with my grandparents. And someone was like, well, where's your mom? And I actually didn't know, like, I, you know, I hadn't seen my mom in years. And, you know, so I was just like, well, you know, I lied because I didn't really know what to say. Yeah. Because uh, I didn't want to really reveal all that. And so I knew then that, you know, if I ever had kids, I didn't want them to have to answer that question and feel the shame that I felt. And I knew that if I was going to be able to do that, I was going to have to compete with kids like this to go to college. So I had this whole new urgency around performing well and getting the best grades I could when I went back to Thurgood. And so that's really like what changed for me, yeah. that, that program at Stanford. Yeah. And when, when you had that moment, did you start thinking about what you wanted to do um, in the future? Like what you wanted to study in college? I went through a lot of different iterations. You know, I, I actually really got into politics when I was in high school. I Why? was like, there was, let's see, my, so I, I grew up, you know, my grandma used to make us memorize speeches when I was a kid. And so she used to make us memorize like King's I Have a Dream speech and we had to write our own speeches or whatever. So I got introduced to these historical figures that were about promoting social change. Yep. And in my history classes, I was just always interested in the other historic figures and I really got interested in the political figures. And so I started to look up a bunch of different presidents. So like Lyndon Johnson and, you know, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, George, anybody that you can mention, you know, yeah. and, and and I started to take internships at political offices. And then I started a program at my high school called Junior Statesmen of America. And it was like a, a chapter, it was a national program. You started a chapter at your, at your school. So I started a chapter at my high school. So my interest in politics started there, but it really like solidified when my senior year of high school, because there was this, you know, this incident that happened on campus that really um, I, this is like the first time I ever heard of a school board. I never knew what a school board was before my senior year. We had a fight that broke out, you know, at the school. So I, I mentioned that Thurgood had been this this beacon of like getting this this factory of getting kids to go to college. A new superintendent came in and wanted to change the school, and she ousted the founding principal. Mm-hmm. So my senior year of high school, there was a new principal on campus, and that person was there to like as on a mandate to like you know, changed the culture of the school. No one liked her. And there was a fight that broke out on campus. And, you know, fights happened at every school, but the police were called. And so when the police were called, they came and they called backup. And then more police came. And then the news wires picked it up. And oh. so the news cameras were there. And then there was helicopters hovering the school. And then the next thing I knew, there was a SWAT team on campus doing military formations in the street. And so if, you know, if you're an eighth grader, if you're the parent of an eighth grader, in San Francisco, and you're watching the news, you know, where's Thurgood Marshall on your list? Yeah, yeah. So, the uh, the reputation. Yeah, so the school went from 1,100 students to 450 students. Wow, in a year? Over the course of seven years. Wow. They had nine principals in seven years. And, you know, it went from being called the Black Lowell to Thug Good. When I went back there as a high school advisor, you know, the kids were calling the school Thug Good. So, that time, my senior year, I, you know, I, I didn't know that downturn was going to happen, but I knew how important 
those decisions were and how they can really affect people's lives. And so that's, you know, I had this interest and then I saw that example was like, you know, in my own, in my face about um, what bad leadership and bad policy can do to, to hurt the community. Yeah. Yeah. So at that point, you're in uh, your senior year of high school. Um, do you know, like you mentioned that you were interested in politics. How did you go, how did you approach the process of applying to colleges? Did the school help you with uh, picking out colleges? Did you um, get any assistance in terms of finding out about financial aid programs? Uh, what kind of resources did your high school provide at that point in time? Yeah, great question. So the, the same teacher that told me about Stanford was also a graduate of Williams College. And so that's the school that I ultimately ended up going to. Williams is like the small liberal arts school in Massachusetts. But my only objective was to run away, right? Because I, I had like... I had all the shame associated with my, my childhood. I wanted to like get out of San Francisco. I felt stifled and, you know, I was trying to figure out how I can get as far away as possible. And when I knew that I can use school to do it, my only objective was to leave, you know, so all the schools I applied to were small. I wanted like a, an experience that was the exact opposite of how I grew up. So I wanted to go to a small school on the other side of the country, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So I applied to like over 30 schools. You know, and uh, and I got like three, four rides to Berkeley. My grandma was like, go to Berkeley. Everyone was like, go to Berkeley. And I was like, hell no, I'm not going to Cal. No disrespect to, you know, Cal. But uh, I was trying to get out. And so um, so that's what drove how I decided. I was really self-motivated when I was figuring out where to go. But in terms of scholarships, uh, Williams, you know, she's like one of these very wealthy, generous schools. So all my financial need was, need was met. And I got a scholarship uh, at the time it was called Beating the Odds. It's now called Students Rising Above. And they, they it's like a really incredible program. They give uh, a lot of money and support to kids that are coming out of high school. They profile you in the news. So it was founded by a news anchor named Wendy Takuda. And I was a part of like one of the first cohorts. So um, they would televise kids' stories. People would donate from seeing the stories. So, I, you know, I had, I really, I really lucked out. I got, a, I went to a college that, um, was very generous in, in his financial award, and I got a scholarship that was also very generous and supportive. Awesome, awesome. And so it sounds like you know you've gotten into college, you're studying politics, uh, you were exposed to computers and things like that. Um, did you use computers at all when it came to organizing politics, and um, how did it lead you into you know after graduating into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I, I really struggled at Williams. I, I ended up leaving Williams for a year because uh, because it was, you know, I just got into like a lot of stuff and I had to go. And and so I, I, I didn't think that I was going to finish at Williams. Um, when I when I came back, you know, what, what really changed for me was uh, I realized how well connected the school was and how I could really invest in building relationships the thing that actually got me interested in doing things that were like entrepreneurial was uh, music. I was like, I directed music videos, which I, you know, I didn't yeah. mention to you before, but mm-hmm. I was like uh, directing music videos for Bay Area hip hop artists. And so, uh, so you came back to the Bay. I came back uh, and started taking film classes. And over my summers, I would direct music videos. I had a cousin that was a rapper, and he worked with, you know, sort of the, the local notables. Um, he and he was putting out project at the time and that was the first time I took something from like idea to concept to like you know actual fruition and doing stuff on a a tight budget managing a lot of different components and so I really got that bug for like 
trying to use um, my creativity and my vision to to get something off the ground. Computers for me, you know, I'm actually not like a a tech person per se. Um, you know, I, I'm not actually a coder. So the transition to Mission Bit was really about having an exciting leadership opportunity to put to put things in the hands of people that I knew could really like, you know, open their mind in the same way that mine was when I went to that Stanford program. Like I wanted to like provide that experience for somebody. Yeah. And so from what I understand that, that introduction to mission bit, did it come before or after your first campaign? Yeah. Yeah. So, so in my, my, the first time I ran for Board of Education was in uh, 2014. Uh, the school board race is a citywide race. Do you want me to? Yeah. And did and did you graduate? Did you graduate from Williams College? Oh yeah, I finished. Got got yeah. my degree. Got my degree. And uh, yeah, and I came back to San Francisco uh, soon after to do a program called City Hall Fellows, and that was one of these like year long um, leadership development programs where you work in the government office. I got placed in the Department of Public Works and I was working in the finance department. So it was like that, you know, my you get to see how your city works, you know, the public with public works, they fill the potholes. And so I I would ride around with pothole crews and we would do this performance measurement thing to see like how they went about filling the potholes or whatever. And from there, uh it was like you know, I didn't really know anything, right? Like a lot of these programs, that the idea was that they put these talented people into high-level government offices to get them excited about local government, but we're all entry-level. So the people that are running the department are, you know, they're paid too much to kind of, kind of like bring me along. They have to do their job. And um, I was kind of left to my own devices just to like build relationships. So at the time, Sophie Maxwell was supervisor of District 10. Uh, I would go to her office and just ask if I can tag along and do stuff. We had other people in leadership roles, and I would just kind of go up to them and say, "Hey, you know." At the time, when I when I worked at City Hall out of high school, out of college, I was the only black person in the building that was like under forty, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beside like the the security people that checked you in, you yeah. know. And so I would say that to people. We had the head of the of transit was a black dude, and I went up to him and said, "Hey, I'm the only black person." He's like, "Oh man, come to my office. We'll, we'll go sit down." <laughs> So I I really just started to like start building relationships, like what I learned at Williams, you know, yeah. the value that relationships could have. And I went back to my high school to play pickup basketball with some of my old teachers and a job opening had come up at Thurgood, you know, where I, where I went to school. And so when the fellowship ended, I had like a brief stint at a bank and then Thurgood came calling. And so I, I went back to work in the school that, you know, really helped change my life. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked a lot about relationships. And I know, you know, I know for this recent campaign, you had a mentor that helped you with organize and lead to your current position. Did you have a men? Was it that same mentor that you got connected to to help you with your first campaign? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Kim Sheree Moffis was formerly on the Board of Education. When I was in high school, I went to high school with their daughter. Her daughter was like a few years behind me and she was just an active parent. And so when I got back to San Francisco, I actually saw her at an event. And at the time, she was president of the school board. And she remembered me. I was like, oh, I went to Thurgood. I like, I remember you. And so we started to, she started to tell me more about her work. And she appointed me to a commission that it was like a committee that oversaw public education enrichment funding, which, you know, was kind of, it, it sounded kind of dry when you looked at it. But when there's a pot of money in the city that 
goes to fund a, a variety of programs. And so these programs would present what their work was doing. So I was working at Thurgood. I got reconnected to Kim Sheree. She appointed me to this committee. And, you know, I'd always had this interest in politics, but I didn't really know how to get started. And so I revealed that to her. It's like, hey, I'm interested in possibly doing something like, but maybe I had to wait a long time. She was like, nah, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it now, actually, if you want. And so I was like, yeah, but I'm only at the time I was 25 years old, you know, and I was just really intimidated by the idea of running for office. And she really uh, dismantled like that whole fear that I had. And she was like, well, ain't that Facebook dude the same age as you? (laughs) (laughs) How, How much is this company worth? Yep. You know, ain't that, uh, and she just started bringing up a bunch of other examples. She was like, you, you lived this. You went to Thurgood when that issue happened. You know these issues better than anybody that I'm on the board with. Like, why aren't you qualified? And that's the reason why you decided to go to school board is because of what you witnessed, like a school board and that whole militarizing situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew what was possible with public schools, you mm-hmm. know, and I knew what could happen if the leadership wasn't right, you know, and and really our education system, it has to be about unlocking human potential and putting people, you know, we, we are in a position where we have to serve anybody. We don't turn people away. And so as a result of the work we do, we want people to be better. And my life was an example of that. And the kids that I went to school with that got that experience at Thurgood, that was their story too. So I knew the possibility that public schools can have to really transform like the lives of young people that didn't have the resources to go anywhere else. You know, if it's like you're a parent with some means and you're looking at the test scores, you're like, there's no way I'm sending my kid to this school. Or it's a public school that does have great test scores. You know, you want to send your kid there. You're probably a little concerned if you're that parent that you don't have as much as the private school. And so now you're raising money with your other parents. And so that public school has a lot of money, but there's no way you're sending your kid to the school that I went to, you know, but there are like tech leaders, right, at, that are going to those schools, future politicians. Like, I'm, I'm that person. Yeah. And so I knew it was possible if we created the right conditions for, for educators to thrive, for young people to thrive. And so that's what, that's what led me to initially run in 2014. Yeah. What was that campaign like? <laughs> uh, it was pretty uh, – so we, we first had the conversation at 25, and that was in 2012 when I, and I decided not to run. And that's when uh, Matt Haney, who you all know, was elected. And, and he's the, what's his position? He's on the Board of Education now. Uh, he president, was, just, he right? was just the president. Yeah, we just voted Shaman Walden to be president of the school board. Okay. So. Shout out to Matt. Yeah, I decided not to run in 2012. I ran in 2014. And, you know, I knew Kim Sheree, but Kim Sheree was sort of a uh, a very polarizing figure in politics. She was like very heavily entrenched in the progressive side of politics and she's like a tough person like the way that she you know talked tough to me about how i was qualified she just, if she didn't like you she talked tough to you about why you know you shouldn't be doing what you were doing and so um so she built great relationships on one side and and not so great on the other but she was well respected by most people so but that wasn't enough to be really taken seriously by the political establishment you know i was 28 i knew nobody else but her I never raised a dime. So when mostly when you come into politics, people are just going to sort of cast you off to the side. They're like, who the heck is this guy? Like, you know, so what? You know, and no one cared that I went to public schools here. You know, it was because people want to know at some level that you're connected to the issues. But being politically viable is a different calculation. 
And when people are making political decisions and policy, you know, they want to bet on a short thing. They want to bet on the person that they know or they're, they're going to support the person that put in work for them. So um, it was it was a very tough obstacle just to kind of break in. But what what happened was there was a really incredible response from the people that had known me for a long time that I was running. So, you know, we outraised everybody in the, in the first campaign. And it, it wasn't until midway through they were like, oh, this guy's for real. He just like blew everybody out the water with his, fun, with his fundraising numbers. And then some of the, the bigger political institutions started to support me. So by the end of the year, it was looking really good, but I ended up losing by less than 1% of the vote. I lost by like 0.6% of the vote. And so, so yeah, that was my first race. That was 2014. How did that make you feel? You know what? When I lost the first time, the morning of the election, I, I, it's, it's tough to know uh, what a political outcome is going to be. You know, I went for, uh, there were times over the year when I was like certain I was going to win. There was times over the year when I was certain I was going to lose. And I just, it just became important for me to know on election day that I had done everything I could to win, you know. And I, when I woke up on election day, I really did feel that way. When, on the, and the day after, on Wednesday, when I had thought about all that, that had happened, I just like, I cried. I was just like, damn, it was, it was like a cathartic release of pent up year of like a very trying experience. To run for school board is very difficult. It's a citywide election and it's not a high profile race. You know, if you talk to most voters in any county and you ask them who's on your school board, they'll be like, they may know, but unless you're like your parent, unless you're like a stakeholder, you're not going to actually necessarily know. So it really becomes about who your endorsers are. So like, and that's like an insider game, you know, and in order to get those endorsements, you have to go to every political meeting and there's an endorsement season. So imagine, you know, you're working a full day and then afterwards you're going to like six different meetings to say your three minute pitch. You're going to rooms that are hostile, people that they know they're not going to support you. And then you have to go and try to raise money. And so if you guys, you know, you guys work hard for your money, you know, imagine somebody's calling you and saying, hey, can you donate $500 to my school board campaign? And you're like, what the hell And so, um, you know, it's, it's, if you've never asked for money before, it's really hard. If you never had to, like that type of strenuous schedule, it's really hard. I, I started my campaign in January. I did both years in January, and I'm running until November. So my first race, I flew to New York City to do a fundraiser and Boston to do a fundraiser. I was like, I was always working on the campaign. But the last several weeks, all I did was knock on doors and when, you know, put up flyers, do visibility. We just went through an election season. If you're at a transit stop, right, and somebody's in front of you say, hey, I'm running for office, and you're just like, oh, you know, you're ignoring the person. You're treating them like, they, mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're a nuisance <laughs> or whatever. So I was just there on the receiving end on a lot of that rejection. And it's just like, uh, yeah. you know. What so, did you learn from the, like the first phrase that enabled you to win the second time? Well, I, I, you know, I had proven myself to the, I think, the political community in the first race, and I, I found out how to run smarter. I had more responsibility in the second race because I was then running Mission Bit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, I was just more calculated about where I could put my time. In the first race, I got up at 4 a.m. every morning, and I would go into public housing areas of the city and put up my flyers on doors. And I would do that actually all over the city. You know, wow. in the second race, I didn't do that. <laughs> because uh because you know it was it was about like just trying to leverage all of the things that I knew I needed to because now I was running an organization that kids were actually relying on like kids were planning that they had to show up they were expecting things to be there I had people that were working for me I had to go out and raise money for a mission bit 
and the financial situation for Mission Bit was like very dire when I started. So, you know, I had like these dual things that I was trying to move forward. So, you know, I had to prioritize Mission Bit and not, so it forced me to really get smarter about how I ran my second race. Yeah. And I think this is a perfect segue into kind of diving deeper into what Mission Bit does. For the listeners, can you give an overview of what Mission Bit does and also mention how you even got introduced to Mission Bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. So when during my first race, I was reading articles about the lack of access to computer science education in the country. And there was this article in the New York Times that stated that in the entire state of Alabama, no African-American kid had taken a computer science exam. And so that was like pretty shocking to me. And I wanted to get a sense of, well, what was it like in San Francisco? I said, Alabama, we have to be doing better in San Francisco. And, you know, because I grew up here and I know a lot of educators here, teachers will always invite me to come to their class to talk to their kids about my life story and, you know, to build a rapport with me. So I went to this fifth grade class at Flynn Elementary, which is like in sort of the Bernal Heights area of the city. It's a lot of low-income students that go to the school. And I was talking to them about computer science and building games. And I just asked them, you know, how many of you want to learn how to build a games that you love to play? And I, and the kids were like flipping out. They were like, oh, I would love, they were like, it was like, <laughs> it was like the day it ended early and there was cake outside. You know, that's how excited they were. They were jumping up and down. So it just really sparked my interest. You know, who's doing this here? Because there's this article about no access to these kids that really want to do it. So I'm on, on Twitter looking up organizations that are actually trying to teach coding. So the Mission Bit Twitter handle was one of the organizations I reached out to just to get a sense of how it was going to introduce the opportunity. Uh, so that's how I came to know Tyson, who was running Mission Bit. Now, mind you, at the high school level in San Francisco, I found out more that the lack of access to computer science today is still incredibly dire. You know, we have 17,000 high school kids in taking in public school in San Francisco. Of that 17,000, only 6% are enrolled in computer science class. So that's about, you know, about 800 students. And of those 800, there are about 20% girls. Uh, the overwhelming majority are white and Asian boys. You know, the majority of our district is incredibly diverse. We have like 25% Latino students, 10% African-American, 33% Asian. We have like 8% or maybe like 5 to 8% Polynesian students. You know, most of the, these students aren't enrolled in the class. So this is like the international hub of the tech community. Kids are going out into this economy having never seen what it would take to actually have a job in the industry, having like a software engineering job in the industry. So it then became clear to me that it was going to be important to grow this organization to be able to serve those students. So how did you get involved? So you found, just for a listener, so you found their handle on Twitter, you reached out to Tyson, and then how did you end up becoming the CEO and like taking the leadership of Mission bit. Yeah, it was like, it's like the most random thing. I swear it's like one of those, <laughs> you're, I, you know, no disrespect to any white people listening, but I feel like it was like one of those white people stories where like they go to a cafe and then there's <laughs> an investor next to them and they have like, they meet a person at a cafe that can invest $5 million in whatever they're doing. It was like that, you know. Experience. Yeah, because when I, after I lost the race, Tyson and I sat down to have coffee and I really just wanted to know if I could be helpful, you know. He was uh, based at, at the time, he was based at Zynga. Uh, you know, he, he had me over and we just started talking about, I, I was asking him like, well, how's it going? What are you up to? And, and I built all these connections through the campaign. I just wanted to see if 
I could plug them into his work. And at the end of that conversation, maybe spoke for about an hour. He was like, so do you want to run the organization? It was, <laughs> it was just like, and Tyson is like that, that, that type of guy. Tyson is a, a very instinctual sort of like follow your heart type of person. You know, he had started Mission Bit because it was a, a passion project. He wasn't necessarily interested in the nuts and bolts of what it would take to run a nonprofit because a lot of that is very onerous and it's not connected to what you really love about the work. It's about grant reports and outcomes and all this other stuff. And he just wanted to like do something fun. So it really, it, you know, it was really like a, a gut decision, an instinctual decision for him to say, hey, I think you might be good for this. Why don't you meet my board? And so I went to go meet all the board members. And I had all these perceptions of people in tech. I mean, I, I just ran a campaign when it was like the forces was like the soul of our city is being taken by these tech douchebags. It was like that was like the yeah. tone of the last few races. And so now I'm sitting down with this person that you can arguably say is trying to techify our kids. Like you could be like <laughs> an aversion of that. Right. And so I went to that meeting, like kind of apprehensive about what it was going to be like to meet him and to meet his board. And I saw the, the board members titles. Like one guy was, you know, had a leadership role at Zynga. Another guy was one of the co-founders of Deb Bootcamp. And so I was like, Oh my goodness, these people are going to be, you know, folks that I don't want to be associated with. Right. And so I, but I sit down with them. And they're telling me their stories about how they got into tech. And the, the guy that was, was in leadership at Zynga, he was like a high school dropout in England. And he, um, you know, worked his way up. And the guy that was one of the co-founders of Dead Bootcamp grew up in the rural Indiana. And he had no access to computer science. He, he found a computer science book at the library and taught himself and then got a five on the AP computer science exam. Wow. It's like, <laughs> it like incredible, right? <laughs> and so now they're out in San Francisco running this organization for no money and just like really passionate trying to solve a problem, you know? So I knew that there were people that were really committed to change and that I could build with. And so I, I decided to take the leap. And they took a chance on me too because, you know, I had run a campaign, but I had never run an organization. I had never filled out a grant report, you know? So it was like a, it was a sort of a, a dual yeah. like, Hey, let's give Gosh, it a shot, yeah, you yeah. know? Yeah. In the pre-interview, you mentioned that the direction of Mission Bit also changed once you became the CEO. So what is it that, um, like, what is it that Mission Bit, uh, what does it do now? Uh, what was it doing before and what's it doing now? Yeah. Before the organization was, was all volunteer run. So the basic model is, is the same. We have 13-week project-based courses that happen after school. They're like four hours a week. So it's like Monday, Wednesday, four to six, Tuesday, Thursday, four to six. Kids are learning HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So those components are the same. What changed was there were volunteer software engineers running the class. And oh, I should also mention, since it's after school, kids, they're applying from all over the city to come to a particular school site to learn how to code. So we're based, we were based at Mission High School. And so kids were coming from the south side of the city, the north side of the city, you know, they were coming on the bus to learn how to code. And so that aspect is still the same, but there wasn't really a focus on building a learning community where students of color and low-income students can thrive. So kids that came to the class that were really passionate would stay in the class and we would lose a lot of kids. And the, the kids that we lost were the kids that were the, are the people that we're, we're not seeing in tech. So we would, we would have this huge attrition rates with our female students, our African-American, Latino students. 
And so those trends were happening before I got to the organization. So what I really sort of tried to hone in on was building aspects of the program that could be more supportive and engaging the students that were, that we were not getting and also growing the record or growing like the the brand so that kids that weren't taking the class would now consider taking the class. So it was like a a lot of things sort of happening at once, but I was trying to like I was trying to solve for these gaps that we had as an organization and encourage more kids to enroll that we don't traditionally see in tech. Yeah, and it sounded like you took some creative measures to incentivize the kids to come. Can you just talk a little bit about what um, you guys offer to the students and maybe talk about the application process and all that other stuff? Yeah, and a lot of the stuff I implemented in the last year, but you know, the Mission Bit is always, our courses are run with donated laptops from tech companies. So, you know, different companies, equipment that's outside of their life cycle, it's like two years old, mm-hmm. you know, but it's still like really good shape. We take those computers, they're usually MacBooks or MacBook Pros, and students are learning how to code on, on those machines. So we got, we started to get more laptops. Uh, how, how many did you get? In the past year, we've gotten 400 laptops donated. Amazing. Yeah, right on. And so we run the courses on donating laptops. We just started to implement a stipend. So uh, students now get Students that are admitted to the class get $300 over the course of the, the semester. Mm-hmm. If they want to continue to learning, learn outside of the class, we'll lend them a laptop for the semester. Uh, my goal is to, is to be like Thurgood, actually. And every kid, you know, eventually every kid that comes to Mission Bit, they get a laptop. It's just on GP. Mm-hmm. You, you at our school. Like when I, when I got, when I got the Thurgood, first day, you got a laptop. It wasn't, there was no strings attached. You know, I could have went home and completely destroyed the computer, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get back to that. But until we get enough laptops to sort of do that comfortably, we're going to lend them. So students get $300 to take the class. They get a laptop to take home if they want to continue mm-hmm. working outside of class. That's dope. That's dope. And so for Mission Bit, and now that you're working on the school board, can you talk a little bit more about the partnerships that you are, or the people that you're collaborating with from the boot camps, the vision for the school board and how like you're aligning everything? Yeah, yeah. So the work that I'm doing at Mission Bid, I think, is a is a value add to what we want to accomplish as a school district. The school district is interested in expanding computer science to young people across. Uh, That's the K-12. CS for the CS for All program, right? Right. So there was a resolution that was passed by the Board of Education to introduce computer science K through 12. Have a plan introduced it for kids, you know, in every grade in in public school. So the district is attempting to roll that out. What we are trying to do is be a value add to sort of supplement and augment actually like what's happening at the high school level, because just because a, a class is in is offered doesn't mean that a kid is going to take it, and just because a kid takes it doesn't mean they're going to get a supportive learning environment to actually stick through it. So we're looking to we're looking for our graduates from Mission Bit to go back into the CS programs in the day after they've had like a good experience for it, or to go on to college or to career education opportunity like a coding boot camp or it's a certificated program at a junior college. So we are uh, really helping to light a fire in young people about what they can do with technology and then connecting them to different avenues after they leave us so they can continue they continue their learning. So for, I mean, the school district overall, right, we have 55,000 young people that are attending public schools in San Francisco. We have 7,000 employees. We have a, a housing crisis. 
We have a teacher shortage. We have an achievement gap. You know, so those, those are like all the things that are now issues that I own as an elected official. I could point it out and talk bad about it before I was, you know, elected to govern. Mm-hmm. But that's what I'll be focused on on the, on the school board is leveraging the city's resources because the the school board and the in the city have different budgets. We have different elected leaders, so we're completely independent as an entity. But our budget is like seven hundred million. The district, the city's budget is like nine billion, right? So you know, we have to do more to create resources for our young people. And we have to have some real solutions around, you know, what we're going to do about our, our teacher crisis, right? And our, and our housing crisis. We, we have like, I think 200 openings, like positions that are unfilled, schools that are going without teachers. We have that's and across the state, that's like 4,500 people. So this is, this is like, a, there's a shortage of teachers across the state. And so, you know, doing more to entice people to join the profession but if they are going to join the profession to come to san francisco and once they come to stay here that's going to be incredibly instrumental in the long-term outcomes of our kids because again like i was mentioning i never heard of the school board until i was in a senior and it was because it was something bad that happened all the people that really changed my life were in the classroom and so if we can't get good people in the classroom we are going to be at a severe disadvantage as an institution yeah yeah can you talk a little bit more about the demographics? You know, you talked a little bit about demographics of um, not just the school board in San Francisco, but also of Mission Bid and what that looks like. Can you talk about that and why that's important? Yeah. So the demographics of San Francisco and then the school district. Yeah. So the demographics of San Francisco, you know, San Francisco's population is about 800,000 people. And I think according to the last census, in just terms of African-Americans, is about 4% African-American. The other demographics, I'm not too sure on right now, but for the school district, I, I have a better sense. We have like 33% Chinese students, 25% Latino, 10% African American. And then this is sort of, this is, you know, a variation of other ethnic groups in terms of female, male, it's like 47% female students that attend public schools in San Francisco. And the overwhelming majority of, we have, you know, about 65% of students that are on free and reduced lunch that are like low income. So we're, we're serving like, we have 44 documented languages. It's just like an incredibly diverse district with a lot of families that are, you know, living below the poverty line. But San Francisco, right, that's not the necessarily what's happening in San Francisco. San Francisco has only really become a place where you can live if you're doing either like you're really poor or you're doing okay. Like our middle class in the city has really been gutted by the affordability crisis and people have sort of like been pushed out of of the city. So our city is changing a great deal. You know, either you've been here a long time, like my grandparents and you bought, you know, her, her, my, my grandmother's father bought the home that she lives in. Right. He bought like several homes around the Bay area. He was just like a very enterprising guy. And if that's not the position that you're in, if you're trying to like buy now, you have to kind of hit it big. Yeah. And so, you know, you talked about a lot of these positive and negatives that have changed. Can you talk about the composition of this of the school board as well, and then what you did at Mission Bit to change the demographics and like what you're thinking about from outcomes going forward? Yeah, our our school board is really so the school board is seven members. Uh, we have two African American men on the school board, myself and Shaman Walden. We have uh, there's four men and three women, which is like the first time it's been majority men in at least 15 years. Uh, I think when Matt started, he was the only man on the board. So there's there's one Latino man who's also LGBT. He's also a gay man. And we have three women 
one Filipino woman, one Japanese woman, and one white woman. So I can tell you the names. That's just like the the breakdown. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then uh, for and then for Mission Bit, the things that really changed were the level of touch that I had with the communities that the young people that weren't really participating. So you know, I went out personally and and talked to classrooms, talked to educators that had trusting relationships with. African-American, Latino students. I talked to coaches. I talked to churches. I talked to families, like anybody that would listen and let them know that, you know, our kids are not getting the access to this. And the thing about it is like, they love this stuff. I mean, you can't pull me, you can hardly put me away from my phone, right? You can't really pull kids away from their phones. They're, they love it. And so there's going to be a natural connection there. The thing that they have to their advantage, a lot of our, you know, minority communities is that they're incredibly creative and they want to like do different things with, with stuff. So if we can tap in to their creativity and teach them the technical skills, like they can probably design some things that are like really fascinating, you know? So kids took a shot on us and they started to enroll more. We saw the entire enrollment number increase and we saw the enrollment, the interest of different groups that weren't participating in Mission Bit increase. So, um, you know, my first semester, we got like, the summer, we had like 20 kids in a row, right? And then the fall, we had uh, maybe 75 kids in a row. And this was fall, that was fall of 2015. In the spring of 2016, we had reached maybe like 120 kids, right? And, and then in the fall of 2016, we had over 200 kids in a row. And that was it, was, it was so large at that point that I had to design an admissions process to be more intentional about the students that we were selecting. So we had, you know, close to 200, over 220 students enroll, but I could only reasonably take 80 kids per cohort. So we had to design an admissions process to get, you know, uh, to dig a little deeper to figure out what type of learning environment that we want to create with the type of students we wanted to have to, to really make sure there's going to be a successful experience for them. Yeah. And in the pre-chat, you said something that was very interesting. For some students who start out on day one, you mentioned that initially a lot of them did not actually make it to the graduation to the end of the 13 weeks. And then you guys started to implement some practices in order to promote and encourage like learning and just teaching kids how to learn. So can you talk about what those uh, practices were? Yeah, there are these longstanding barriers that people have about their sense of ability. And there's an interesting book that's actually written about this. It's called uh, Whistling Valvaldi. It's written by Claude Steele. And he really justifies this term that he calls stereotype threat. And stereotype threat affects different people in different ways. So one of the interesting components of Claude Steele's work is he talks about a case study where there were white kids, white males at Stanford or at, at Princeton. They took white males at Princeton and they put them on the golf course and they told them before they hit the golf ball, the way that you hit this ball is going to be a measurement of your natural athletic ability. And so when they heard that, they did worse after they hit the golf ball than people that heard it. And they just, they did fine. Because natural athletic ability is something that they may have associated with like a different demographic, right? And when you told, you know, African-American person that it measured their natural athletic ability, it actually didn't affect them at all. You know, they didn't do better, but it didn't affect them at all. So for different people in different ways, different messaging can either affirm or discourage how they perform in any given task. So for African-American Latino students, you really see it in like test taking. So when they have, that's why in SAT, they started to get rid of students marking their ethnicity 
before they took the test because they saw that what kids were doing it, they were doing worse on the test. So, you know, so stereotype threat is something that something that is like pervasive. It sort of like helps define you know, these different aspects of our identity. And so we have to keep that in mind when we thought about uh, the students that were coming into our class. And so this got real for me one of our semesters when there was an African-American young girl, she's like in the 10th grade, and the class has started and she is like absolutely petrified to come inside. Like she's looking like shaken, you know, and I'm in charge. I'm, <laughs> I run the organization. I'm like, baby, like, what's wrong? Like, why, why are you afraid? And she was like, is this the class? And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is the class. And I sat her down to somebody who she knew, his name, uh, another student in the class. And the, the funny thing is, like that student had dropped out the semester before. He was African-American male. He was, in our, he was in our class semester before. He dropped out. And his dad called me and told me, hey, hey, my kid was in this class. Like, what happened? I was like, he stopped coming. I don't know. What's, what's going on? Is he, is he okay? And he's like, I don't know, but we're going to get him back in the class. So his, his, the kid came to the final event demo day. His dad enrolled him in the, the course the following semester. And so when I set her down next to him, he was talking to her. And he came up to me after class. And he was like, you know, it's the trip. It's like, she's like, she had all this anxiety. And it's exactly how I felt last semester. And I really didn't know why. But I, I don't feel it now. And I was trying to tell her it was going to be okay. But she, she was like really discouraged. So, you know, I read the book. But that's when I knew it was like actually happening. We actually lost that girl. We didn't have enough staff support to keep her engaged. But the student that came back because of his parents' support finished the semester and he's still connected to the organization. So, you know, what we started to, what I was just now able to do was hire a team that was well-versed in these strategies and we have a better picture of what happens over the course of a term. Like we have 13 weeks. We know that at this point in the semester is when we see a lot of drop-offs. So we know that in our selection process, we have to do something about how we message who is able to take the class. And we have to do some things to help them internalize the message about their own ability. And over the course of those first several weeks, we have to have other targeted interventions specific to the young people we're really trying to retain that, you know, can continue just to help them to persist as things get more and more tough. So, so now I have a team that is well-versed in all the strategies that that can help students stay. You know, we, we, we've improved in terms of our, our numbers of students that have completed from every demographic, and we've increased those numbers in every demographic. So now my, my real goal is making sure that, especially for an intro class, the first time somebody's doing it, that we have everything in place to ensure that students are going to feel connected and really empowered as a result of being a Mission Bit student. That's awesome. So are we going to see, you know, Mission Bit powering public schools across America to to learn how to do STEM or, or what's the what's the vision for that? <laughs> no, Mission Bit is uh, committed to the Bay Area. For now. So you're going to power the public schools in the Bay Area. Yeah, and that's this thing about, um, you know, the, the, there's a one of these, there are like these, I just now came into tech really because I'm, you know, because now I'm running this organization. So we often hear these words like disrupt and scale and, uh, you know, innovation and like all these like sort of buzzwords that are, running rapid in the tech community. How are you going to scale? You don't know how to scale. And I was really convinced that I had to do that when I started Mission Bit, that it had to be national. And I met a man that was running an organization in Queens called Coalition for Queens. His name is like uh, Juke. And I was talking to Juke um, about 
what he was going to do to scale. I was like, oh, you're in Queens. You should be in Detroit. You should be. And he was like, <laughs> it's like, nah, <laughs> it's like, nah, we're, you know, you know, people are always convinced that that's what it takes to be successful. But, you know, we have, we have like 3 million people in Queens. That's and, real. And so I started to think like, you know, the Bay Area is so is the headquarters for a, a, where a lot of this stuff is happening. And the disconnect is so, you know, so detrimental to this learning opportunity. And I think it's really a disservice to a lot of the kids growing up here that they're locked out of just even knowing if they were lacking or not, you know? So if you look, I talked about the San Francisco access issue across the Bay Area. We did a research report on, you know, how many high schools in the Bay Area have a high concentration of low-income students and no access to computer science. We reached out to these folks from these volunteers from Bain Capital. They did this research report for us. And it turned out that there are today 100,000 students in the Bay Area that are attending high school that have never seen, have no access to computer science at their school. There's no course in the school day for them. And they're growing up and also going out into this local economy, you know, and they're going to be relegated to these jobs that or, you know, that can be automated or replaceable. Like, you know, we're, we're saying, oh, maybe they can be janitors. Like, no, nah, they can they can run these companies, you yep. know. So when we talk about unlocking human potential and the very like the low hanging fruit around the connections we can make, Mission Bid really wants to be that institution that can provide that onboarding for kids in this region. You know, and so I'm, I'm committed to that, to really being that for young people in the Bay Area. That's awesome. So. The next part of our podcast, it's the lightning round. And this is the part where Arthur, Ruben, and I will ask you a series of questions and uh, try to provide uh, short responses, but fill them with different tactics, strategies, or any other resources that you would recommend our listeners do in order to succeed in tech. So Arthur, take it away. Sure. So imagine if you were uh, dropped in a brand new city, you, you don't know anyone, and you only have $100 to start over, what would you do and how would you go about spending that $100? Brand new city. I would go, uh, I would, uh, I would spend my $100 on food and spend my time finding out who were the major movers and shakers in the city mm. and just walking up and, and saying hello mm -hmm. and focusing on building relationships. Mm -hmm. Relationships have always been the key for me. And so that could be relationships, you know, if it's, if it's at a restaurant, it's relationships there. If it's at the bank, it's relationships there. There are so many like common human emotions that we all feel. People want to feel validated, connected. They want to like, they want to, you know, they respond to you, your genuine interest in them. So relationships is always mm -hmm. what I focus on. Awesome. So let's go back to the time when you, um, you know, music has obviously been a big, you know, we, we met through music. Mm-hmm. What was the name of the artist? That Christian Scott. Christian Scott. Uh, we met at a jazz yeah, concert. Yeah, shout out to Christian Scott. Shout out to Incredible young jazz artist. You know, let's take it back to where you lost the campaign mm -hmm. um, and you were feeling very emotional. You know, was there any kind of outside activity or piece of music, poem, book, or other creative art that helped either inspire you or help you stay focused to pursue the dream or even change your dream? You know, I mean, one of one of my favorite records that I always go back to is uh, "Juicy" by Biggie. Uh huh. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, you know, I'm one of these like, uh, you know, I'm a child of hip hop. Mm -hmm. Grew up loving hip hop, and so those classic '90s records, yeah, 
from artists that were like incredibly lyrical but knew how to really get you like Wu-Tang I mean when when you were talking about you know that moment when you bet you know when you were going from fitting in and all that type of stuff like it reminded me of that line you know um, don't ever forget that moment you begin to doubt transition from fitting in to standing out by mm-hmm. Drake and then you dropped a bunch of other lines earlier, but um, no, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, good, man. Yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. What was he saying? Well, it's like uh, Jay-Z. Yeah. Jay-Z is like, drop me anywhere on God's green earth. I'll triple my worth. Exactly. And Cam, and Cam, Cam has so many lines that Cam is like, Cameron is one of my, my he, you know, the stuff that he says is, it's not fitting for a person on the school board to promote. <laughs> but, that's uh, that's but, uh, but Cam is definitely one of my favorite, top favorite artists. Yeah. So the next question is, um, it's about giving advice. So over the last month, we've been able to look, see where our listeners come from. And they come from over 50 countries, every single state. And uh, if there was a teacher or maybe a parent who's listening to this podcast, and they're inspired by your story, they want to bring computer science education or a similar program to their high school, what advice would you have for them in order to accomplish what you've been working on? Yeah, we actually, Mission Bid Act, we actually get inbound interest from people all over the world too, asking us. We had people from Colombia that visited that wanted to talk to me about what we've been doing at Mission Bit. And I think the fact that I know no coding whatsoever and I'm one of the, you know, and even as a small staff, I'm, I'm serving a lot of kids should be definitely inspiration <laughs> to anybody in any remote place that, the, that you can find the connections that you need. Um, to get this off the ground, you know? So the funny thing about also about people and relationships is that folks really want to help, you know, people, if it, you'd be surprised what people will offer if you're willing to make the ask. And one of my, well, actually one of my favorite lines, one of my homies told me was that, and this was helpful too, when I was asking for money, when I was running for office, he told me, if you, if you, if you're not hearing, no, you're not asking enough. Yeah. You know, so for parents, I'm always encouraged. Parents go through incredible lengths to for their kids to succeed, and some of them are faced with a lot of barriers. If someone is interested in helping and figuring out, like, oh, how do I get started? Like, ask me. I'll, you know. And if if there's like a local college near you, there's likely a computer science professor there. Or if, if there's a local library near you, there's like Code Academy. You know, you can you can start to email different people at different organizations. So. The more you ask, the more you'll be led in the direction you're looking to go. Yeah. And you touched on something. I mean, it's definitely very inspiring about like how even though you didn't grow up coding, like you're leading all these people in this this mission, you did not talk about the agents of change, which you talked about in the Mission Bit program. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about people that are in this technology space, it's like one of the other buzzwords that you often hear is that, you know, everyone wants to like make something better or have an app to solve a problem. So that what people that are focused on building products think about is how to improve things or how to make things different. And so that's sort of a natural byproduct of being really excited about computer science. The young people that we serve are, they see like social issues all around them that are really like stifling their community. And so what we want Mission Bid to be as well is like giving them the agency to understand that if you can build something here, you can likely change something somewhere else. And you can, if you can build something here, you can build something that can employ somebody somewhere else. You know, like you are, this city belongs to you, actually. And so in my leadership, right, like being an elected official in San Francisco, running this organization, coming from the same community, you know, 
it's really important for me that we emphasize that with them over the course of their time with us. And so how, how can people keep in touch with you? Yeah, I'm easy to get a hold of. I'm on like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. What's your Twitter? In the show notes. Yeah, well, including the show notes, but what's your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's Stevon Cook. Mm-hmm. I'm probably like too accessible. <laughs> nah, but you know, I'm, I'm always happy to, uh, I get way more emails now. I'm on a school board um, mm-hmm. from people that have concerns. So yeah. I'm, I'm constantly talking to the public. So I'm happy to, to awesome. connect awesome. with you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, thanks for spending time with us. Um, we're excited to support you going forward. And anything that we can do to support your mission, let us know. Um, and shout out to Mission Bidding. Let's make 2017 something very special. Yeah, man, you guys are great, man. You guys are getting yeah. a lot of great guests and growing a lot. And this is like, this is inspiring to me. So yeah, keep Thank telling you. these stories. Thank, Thank you, guys. You, bro. For sure. yeah, Thanks for coming. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.